Tim Wilson, welcome to Young, Dumb and Politically Disengaged. Thank you so much for being on the show with me. Well, thanks so much. It's great to be on. The uh, state government's quarantine rules to get back in Victoria mean uh, that I'm going to do two weeks of quarantine, which means I'm not coming back for a while. Yes. Oh, so you're in Canberra. I am. Is it cold there? This morning it was minus seven. Canberra is alpine. It's basically, people forget, it's basically halfway up to the snow fields. But the flip side is you get these really clear days. I guess that yeah. makes and Melbourne mornings pretty warm at like five degrees this morning when I got up for Pilates, so. Hmm. Sounds nice. Yeah. You're Liberals Federal MP for the seat of Goldstein in the House of Reps, and you were first Correct elected. Yes, Goldstein. Um, it's you want to say Goldstein, but no, Goldstein. Um, you were first elected in 2016. You were re-elected in 2019, and you're on the chair of the Standing Committee on Economics. Um, before politics, you were a policy director at the Institute of Public Affairs and Australia's Human Rights Commissioner as well. Um, you recently shared on social media some of the progress you've made over the past five years in public office, including stopping the China extradition treaty, removing my health records to increase medical privacy, improving super to tighten misuse of members' money, which I'll go more to in a minute, um, delivering marriage equality, which I'll also come to, stopping retiree tax, increasing investment in local sporting infrastructure for women and environmental projects. And you've also um, recently published a book, The New Social Contract, Renewing the Liberal Vision for Australia. So you've been pretty busy. Um, what's next on the agenda for you? Uh, well, yeah, I measure parliamentary careers not by longevity in terms of how long you're in the parliament, but based on what you get done. Um, and so my focus now is very much on rebalancing the conversation around uh, superannuation and home ownership. Both matter, but the most important financial decision that any Australian can do is to be able to buy their own home. So we need to do a lot of work to make sure that home ownership is promoted um, and what we can do to support that. There's lots of stuff in planning and tax law and all those things, they're all important. But the most important thing is to get priorities in life correct. You know, you don't start saving for your 65th birthday before you do your 21st. You save for your 21st, you have that, then you worry about your 65th. Uh, and but at the moment, the current law says, worry about your super before home ownership. And I think that's really dangerous, undermines the opportunity for young Australians to be able to buy their own home um, and creates these perverse incentives where you have money that you need early in your life locked away from you. So uh, very much focused on home first, super second, uh, and then what we can do to promote home ownership for young Australians. You've been very vocal on, on your position about super. Um, and earlier in the month, the Economics Committee that you chair conducted a public hearing to hold super funds to account to make sure they're acting appropriately um, with the money they're managing. Uh, and you mentioned there... Your that, money, your money, not, not their yeah. money, your money. Well, all of our money, yes, um, taxpayers. Um, and um, you, as you mentioned before, you've got this movement, Homes First, Super Second, uh, and you summed it up pretty well there. But is this, um, I'm a real estate agent, um, so for me it's interesting too, um, and I'm a, obviously a young person, I, I own a, an investment property. Um, is this 
idea, really a viable solution to first home ownership? And what does it mean then for our housing affordability crisis? So, so firstly, it absolutely is an important part uh, of boosting the chances of young Australians to be able to buy their first home. But it's not the sole solution. Um, but when you have people in their you know, 30s, mid-30s, and the average superannuation balance they have is $38,000, so for a couple we're talking $76,000 of their money denied to them that they then have to save in addition to that money, what you're doing is cutting young people off at the knees while they're trying to save to buy their first home. And so it is an important part of it. And unlike a lot of the other programs which lift the price of housing, uh, like um, first homeowners grants and the like, which are which are universal and then um, property developers and the like all increase their, their rates, the same doesn't occur because this isn't public money, it's your money, uh, and it doesn't have the same flow-on effect because people's situations vary and people are ultimately constrained by how much they can borrow based on you know things like prudential regulation, but we won't go into that, um, but how much money they can borrow from the bank. So it stops young people being undercut. And let's not misunderstand, up until 1992, um, within my lifetime, if you had said, I'm going to prioritise superannuation ahead of home ownership, people would tell you, you were crazy and that you should save for a home, get that, then you can save for your retirement and you'll be fine. It's only in the past 30 years that we've deliberately reversed that and forced young people to save for super ahead of homes. Uh, and as a consequence, among other factors, we've seen home ownership rates decline. So uh, it's a critical part of that conversation, but it's not the only solution um, to address it. Now, I just want to look back very quickly, three and a half years ago, um, where in a parliamentary first, you proposed to your long-term partner, Ryan, in the House of Reps, shortly after the same-sex marriage bill was introduced. Uh, Ryan, of course, said yes. Um, now you're married. And I think it's really cute. Your wedding anniversary is the day between your birthdays. Um, so obviously you didn't decide. Unfortunately, we didn't have that much of a hand in that. I know, I was going to say. But it's yeah, but it's very, very cute. Um, so I feel very single now having read all that out. Um, and I watched the proposal again yesterday and it was such a, a bold, like such a, a raw, um, genuine, you know, human to human moment. And I think at the time it made a real statement about what the legislation meant at that personal level. Um, what was the response like at the time from your party colleagues? Uh, well, of course, you know, People, you know, congratulated us, um, but it's it, it, it was a very important moment in the debate, and I don't mean, I mean, one of the challenges is when you're living out a public debate like that, um, that uh, it can sometimes be really um, difficult when you put your, uh, you have to put your personal circumstances in the context of, and that just wasn't the proposal that had been going on for a decade because I myself have been um, being part of the campaign uh, for more than a decade. But um, there were some people who said, well, you know, this isn't appropriate. Um, because this isn't, you know, this is your private life and you're injecting into the public domain. And I, of course, retorted, didn't you just vote on my private life? You voted on it. And they said yes. And I said, so perhaps I wasn't the one who invited you into my relationship. Perhaps you demanding to have a vote on my relationship um, was the one that just invited the way uh, into it. But the other reason is because while the public, and I say this with great respect, probably saw the public vote as the end of the process, that was kind of when it handballed from the campaign over to us in Parliament. And there's still a lot of work to be done around how the legislation would be designed. And a lot of the debate became very academic. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm quite interested in that academic debate about how you balance out freedoms, how the law should be shaped, what should be in, what should be out. 
Um, and one of the things the proposal did, and, and it was partly designed for this purpose, it was obviously I never actually asked my husband, now husband to marry me, um, so I, I took that opportunity. Um, but it actually humanised the debate again and took it back to what's the essence of what we're trying to achieve and put a human face um, onto what the practical consequence was because uh, while there were uh, a number of openly gay MPs in the parliament, um, I was the only one um, who was in a long-term relationship with the intent to get married, which isn't to cast judgment on anybody else's relationship. It's just that they just met them or they'd been going out for a while, but they weren't, um, shall we say, ready to take the step. We were, and it really anchored the conversation back into a human conversation rather than a legal one. I think that was very important for where we ended up. This month, we saw more than 13 million Australians or half the population thereabouts in lockdown conditions. And here in Victoria, of course, we've only just come out of our latest lockdown, our fifth lockdown, which was 12 days in total for this one. Um, and we're, we're not out of the woods yet with the Delta variant still causing concern here and in other states as yep. well. Um, and meanwhile, mm. New South Wales lockdown has been extended for another month. There's hundreds of new locally acquired cases announced day after day. Uh, and the infectious cases in the community remains persistently high as well. Um, so that's prompted yep. both state and federal governments to announce more financial lifelines for people, for businesses and for individuals. Um, the new measures will cost about $750 million a week and are designed to keep people uh, specifically in Greater Sydney afloat while they deal with this wave. And the changes affect the existing schemes of Job Saver, which is targeted at businesses and the COVID-19 disaster payment, which is for individuals. The maximum payment of $600 to workers will be increased to $750. People have lost more than um, eight hours, but fewer than 20 hours a week. It'll be increased from $375 to $450. And these increased payments will be made from the start of next week, but PM Scott Morrison said they'll be available from the first week of any state or territories lockdown in the future. So I've got a few questions around this. Number one, why not just reintroduce JobKeeper? Number two, is this support enough? And number three, is there any truth in people suggesting that your government is playing favourites by having introduced these increased payments quite literally on the day that both Victoria and South Australia came out of their lockdowns? Uh, firstly, firstly, I'll address the last point, which is uh, resolutely not. Firstly, the, uh, the JobKeeper scheme that was introduced last year was Australia-wide. It wasn't location-specific. Then when the first measure was introduced post-JobKeeper to support um, small business and the like, it was actually introduced for the fifth Victorian lockdown um, because there was uh, threshold. What the government wants to do is firstly not make JobKeeper a permanent feature where we're constantly having wage subsidies funded from basically from debt, let's be frank about this, and borrowing from the future to, for support measures because a society, um, depending on how long these measures go on, can't afford to keep doing so and we don't want to um, uh, leave the economy to not adjust as we're going along and households are adjust long because the longer you leave that, the actually the harder it is for households to adjust in the long run. So the first measure we actually introduced for Victoria, but then what we've done is obviously addressed and identified how there's been changes with lockdowns. And of course, New South Wales is now having a lockdown not dissimilar to the one we experienced last year. And as it's gone on longer and identified that the impact, there's been a scale up. So of course, all the measures like with the Victorian one that was initially announced was available for all states if they're in a similar situation. Victoria was then given an option to, if the state government went 50-50 or they're about 50-50, then the federal government would offer more support. The state 
government, the Victorian state government said no, they weren't going to do that. The New South Wales government took up that option uh, and you saw an escalation support because they're prepared to foot half the bill. And now the Victorian government has made similar announcements for their small business community that they're prepared to foot half the bill. So this is a partnership around how to support people through this time. And there are a lot of um, people, it isn't enough. It's not going to cover all their expenses, particularly a lot of small businesses um, who are heavily hit by lockdowns because what they have is um, their businesses shut down. They continue to have staffing costs, land tax, you know, debt repayments, those sorts of things. And it's not going to cover all their costs. Um, and some of them are taking a real hit. It's, it, and we acknowledge that. It's, it's part of why when you design lockdown measures, um, uh, the need to be deliberative and targeted as well as the broader macro policy has to be considered and weighted appropriately. Let's talk about vaccines. Um, I think we can all acknowledge that our national vaccination rollout has been problematic, to say the least. We've seen delays in international supply, local production, delivery, um, and, of course, a big part of it seems like the ever-changing medical advice around AstraZeneca. In addition to more Pfizer jabs expected over the next few months, there are 51 million doses of Novavax and 25 million doses of the Moderna vaccine on their way as well, but we're told we'll need to wait till at least the end of the year, maybe early next year for those. Um, and the federal government has announced more than a dozen different targets or revisions or updates to the rollout timetable since January. But the latest one that Scott Morrison announced earlier this month is this four-phase plan to transition our response away from our current settings, which focus on uh, continued suppression of community transmission to eventual post-vaccination settings um, on focused on prevention of serious illness and hospitalisation and fatality. Um, and each phase will be triggered by vaccination thresholds based on medical advice and scientific modelling, the first of which I think National Cabinet is set to be briefed on today, which is all well and good. But yep. as it stands, um, Australia is the worst performing country in the OECD for fully vaccinated adults, or at least I think not, if not the, the lowest on the list, the second lowest. Um, and a, a new report, I think just overnight from the Grattan Institute says we should maintain our COVID zero strategy until 80% or thereabouts of the population are fully vaccinated. And that includes 95% of people over 70. So far, around 12 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine have been delivered across the country with less than one in five eligible adults fully vaccinated. So based on the current seven-day moving average of around 1.1 million doses, we can expect to reach those likely necessary thresholds somewhere early next year, maybe January 2022. That's still six months away. Is, is this good enough? And what more should have been done? But now, more importantly, what more can be done to speed this up? Well, we can have a long conversation about the, uh, the vaccine rollout and what should have been done. Do I think Atagi should have given advice that around the alleged threats around uh, or risks around um, AstraZeneca. No, I don't. I, I think they, my personal view is I think they overreacted. Um, and I think that uh, people have been, you know, I agree with the sentiment the other day. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like a plane crash. This guy from, I think he was deputy chair of the AMA said, you know, it's like we're currently uh, in a plane that's crashing. We're arguing over the brand of the safety vest. I mean, it's to me, it's simply absurd. Both vaccines are, um, have been approved, uh, as are the other ones currently being approved. Um, and unlike other countries, they went through full approval processes, which is part of the reason why Australia's vaccine rollout actually started later, is because other countries fast-tracked the vaccines as raised obviously issues of hesitancy, but it's meant people be able to get jabs in faster. We've taken a 
cautious approach to approval to improve uh, or to address the issues uh, of hesitancy. And, um, uh, you know, the, we put a lot of uh, eggs in the basket of AstraZeneca, and we did. But there's a simple reason for that, because we could make it here. I think that was an entirely logical thing to do, and I don't think we should apologise for that um, at all. And, in fact, as we know, and now has become quite clear, is actually it was always safe. It was largely an overreaction to what is a risk, but is a much more lower risk than other places elsewhere. So I think it's clearly getting back on track. Um, uh, and in fact, it's in, you know, the first uh, million doses took 45 days. We're now delivering more uh, near a million doses a week. In fact, uh, if we go off yesterday's data, I think it was nearly 200, or more than 200,000 jets uh, in a single day, which means that we're going to be trending towards 1.2 million this week. So um, I think it's heading in, uh, in the right direction, but you know, no one's going to pretend otherwise. There, there were bumps along the way. Um, there are multiple factors at play in why that's happened. But if anybody doesn't think that the federal government, and I'll say this, state governments, Liberal, Labor, all the population don't want the country to be vaccinated, they're kidding themselves. Um, we all want to make sure that it's rolled out as fast as possible, that those who want it can get it, but critically that we address the issues of hesitancy. So if you're concerned about uh, a COVID-19 vaccine, um, firstly, that whatever side effects occur um, are treatable and uh, addressable. Um, if you're still concerned, see your doctor but then ultimately uh, make the decision and go out and get the jab as soon as possible. And I know some people can't get them because they're aged at this point, but we want them to get it as quickly as possible um, because it's not just about returning things to normal. It's that there are other variants out there. There are another four variants currently on the WHO watch list which haven't even arrived in Australia. And our best position to stop more cycles of things like lockdowns and other measures is that we have people who are uh, have at least antibodies and some resistance to current variants um, so that we only need boosters like the Moderna, like the Novavax and others that will continue to come along as well. The latest Department of Health figures show that more than half of aged and disability care residents and workers are still unvaccinated. Um, as of just a few days ago, only 48% of almost 600,000 eligible people in aged and disability care have received at least one dose of vaccine. This includes just under 40% who have received both doses. In February, your government estimated that the rollout to aged care um, and disability care facilities would take roughly six weeks, meaning the sector should have been completed by April, nearly four months ago. Obviously, we've had the issues with the vaccines that we've just touched on, so that, of course, played into that. National Cabinet has since mandated that all aged care workers must have at least one dose of vaccine by mid-September and vac vaccination is strongly recommended but not mandatory for disability workers. So why are so many of our high-risk workers still unvaccinated? Well, well uh, firstly, um, uh, the, the most important vaccine, and this is important, is not your second one, it's your first one. People people can talk about fully vaccinated versus uh, first vaccination. If you have your first vaccination, you are substantially better than if you have no vaccinations at all. And the second one is, you know, for want of a better phrase, a top-up. So the most important one is to get the first one. Um, there are people um, in, in lots of different circumstances that have led to why they haven't, both based on their own position, but also around their access to medical services, uh, as well as what's been available in some um, uh, uh, work settings. Uh, and those are the sorts of things that everyone's trying to address because, it, it again, it's something we're responsible for, it's something the state governments are responsible for. We had aged care homes which weren't federally run in, in my electorate at the, at the start of the year 
that weren't federally run, they weren't covered by what the state government was taking care of, they were run by council. So we worked, once we identified the problem, to fix it. So wherever there's a problem, we're all working to fix them. But that's the basis uh, in which uh, there are still some people who uh, may not have had their, their vaccine because there are lots of factors that lead to people making either a mixture of choice or circumstance which have led to that. And as we identify it, it's been fixed. The seat of Goldstein, um, it's been a safe Liberal seat since Federation, since the first ever Australian federal election, um, back when it was called the seat of Alaclava. And just what I wanted to, to raise is I find really ironic that when it was abolished and replaced in 1984, renamed after Vida Goldstein, who was this early feminist parliamentary candidate who um, she ran five times for different elections, never got in, um, but got her deposit back, I think, four out of five times, which is... Um, yeah, better than not. Um, and that was in the early 1900s. Um, but she campaigned on fiercely independent and strongly socialist sort of left-wing platforms, yet the seat has never been held by a woman or a progressive party. No, well, I won't agree with you on that. Um, the Liberal Party uh, is, uh, has different strands, so it has um, uh, a progressive tradition as well as a conservative tradition. Um, and, um, uh, and you know, the gender the gender base, that's ultimately that's democracy. People make a choice. I mean, there are a lot of electorates uh, that have never had an openly gay man or woman represent them. I don't judge the electorate based on that. Vida Goldstein was a suffragette and was very influential as one of the most significant women in Australian political history. And in fact, many of the things she fought for, um, ironically, twin with some things that I've fought for. Um, She fought for the right of women to vote, that's true. She was very strong on fighting for the right of women to be able to buy property. Um, what, What was one of the things that I talk very heavily about home ownership as a critical basis of the foundation of the ownership of the country. Uh, she fought for the right of women to enter marriages on the same terms as men. She was, in her way, her own marriage equality advocate of the day. So I don't think there's an irony. She's part of the continuing story of freedom and justice of our country. Um, and she's an important part of that. In fact, on many things, what then were determined to be quite radical or socialist are now quite hum and accepted as principles of a liberal democracy. So, um, you know, I, I, I pay full respect to her legacy and tradition. I think she's been an incredible contributor uh, to uh, to the country and the history. I feel very honoured to have an electorate named after a suffragette, um, for somebody who shares this commitment to equal rights uh, as much as I do. Uh, and uh, and But, you know, the voters decide who gets to do it. And, of course, the name is given by the AEC. It isn't given by a political party. At the end of your Twitter bio, you've got the word notorious just by itself. At the end there, I'm just very curious, what, why? What are you notorious for? At the last federal election, there was a, uh, a candidate, this is a statement of fact, not a statement of opinion. There was a candidate who, for the Liberal Party who obviously had some differences of opinion with me earlier in his career, uh, and he blogged that notorious homosexual Tim Wilson. And... Um, and he was then later disendorsed and said that wasn't acceptable and all that sort of stuff. I personally, you know, I mean, obviously didn't agree, but um, so I put it there because I think it's amusing, if nothing else. I'm a great believer that you own language and when people make, you know, say things, you, you know, you embrace it. Yeah, I'm notorious. Let's go with that. I'm quite happy with that. It's funny. The notorious Tim Wilson. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Leslie. You take care. <laughs>